Welcome back. David Penn here to the Professor Penn Podcast. This is episode 91, International Morality. We're going to talk about international morality today. It's uh, Monday morning, the 5th of February. This is going to post up on February 6th, Tuesday night, 7.30 p.m. Central Time. I want to welcome you back. I hope you're well. Uh, There's going to be a lot of new people coming in. Um, Welcome. You're going to be surprised if you stay. And let me just say up front, I'm a no-labels kind of a guy in the sense that labeling is a cognitive distortion. The scope of my experience and the intention of my politics puts me outside of the traditional dialectic between left and right. And it's my belief that we are watching a repositioning or a recasting of American politics along a new set of dialectics, which are emerging. It's emerging, and it seems quite chaotic. And people say, oh, these people are chaotic. Oh, those people don't have it together. No. Anytime there's change, change, there's what people can label as chaos. But change is always going on. Sometimes it's slow, hard to see. Things are stable. That's when we're within a paradigm a paradigm that defines the way we think and the way we act. But we're in a paradigm shift now. Paradigm shift. The whole way I think about the world, the whole way I compose my reality is getting all kinds of new information. It's it's forcing me to change. And, you know, a lot of us, and people don't like change. They want to maintain uh, continuity, and, and, and that's another dialectic. You got continuity and you got change. In fact, in, in Japan, there's a, a Japanese word, shibui, which means an object has an enduring quality because it's old, it's honored for its, for its age. So we, we have a traditional uh, history and culture and understanding that we share and that we are actually fighting over, and out of that conflict, out of that conversation, a completely new politics is emerging. And I'm on X now quite heavily in this social media thing, because we, if you're new, we're a political action community. You've joined a podcast, you're you're experimenting and listening to me, and there are thousands of people that are watching this podcast across many platforms, and we're united in a search for truth, a search for truth. I'm not saying that I know what the truth is. And people attack me all the time on X, as if I'm saying I know what the truth is. No, I'm sharing my opinion. I'm trying to show different perspectives. I know that for every event, there are four corners with four different perspectives and four different truths. Maybe it's an infinite number. We're just using a a model of a street intersection when there's a car accident. And we get four different reports of what happened. Well, that's a lot like politics and history. There's an infinite number of positions to take on every issue, and everybody that's uh, crafting a story, including Professor Penn, is doing it with an editorial intention. So let me just share up front, if you're new, what my editorial intention is. I believe we've become borderless. And for the left that's listening to me, I want to just say my mother worked as a pro bono attorney 
my entire uh, life, up until when she retired about 10 years ago, as a pro bono attorney working with the poor and with uh, immigrants, most of whom who were not here, quote unquote, legally. So I have some insight into this, and I have great sympathy and um, empathy for the plight of these people, but we've become borderless. And it's not just this physical border that I'm referring to, it's spiritual borders. So the politics that I'm promoting right now today and things I say today because things evolve is the restoration of borders, both spiritual and physical. It's my belief that if I act spiritually appropriate, that's what I can do. That's the most important thing that I can do to make my country healthy because we're talking about the domain of well-being. Well-being. And how do we get there? We restore our borders, both spiritual and physical. We look at debt, debt, the $34 trillion of debt. And I go, why is this? Who's benefiting from this? What are we doing here? Because I remember, uh, I think it was uh, 1981, uh, when President Reagan was first elected, was the first time the national debt exceeded $1 trillion. So from 81 to 2024, we've gone from $1 trillion to $34 trillion. Uh, you know, we'll talk about this a little bit uh, during this week's broadcasts. I, I, I want a politics that relieves the debt and turns public debt into public asset. People go, oh, you can't do that. Why? Why? Who says we have to be in debt? Is that written on a stone somewhere, like a tablet? You know, a commandment, thou shalt be in debt. No. Actually, if you look back at the tablets, it says, thou shalt not be in debt, neither a borrower or a lender be. And suddenly we're, you know, both borrowing and lending. Crazy. That's number two. And number three, I want to end the endless war. The first political awareness I had was the Vietnam War. My parents were leaders of the anti-war movement here in Minnesota and nationally. I've been sensitive to anti-war my entire life, and it really defined the new left of the 1960s, which is the root of the current left. Now, how the left went from committed to anti-war, committed to anti-military industrial complex, committed to peace, to we're funding all these wars, I don't get that. This I don't understand. Not smart enough. I remember, and I said this on the last podcast, my mother worked on the 1968 Eugene McCarthy presidential campaign. Eugene McCarthy was a senator from Minnesota. He was an anti-war leftist of the highest order. He ran a campaign that was all about ending the war in Vietnam. And, you know, Chuck Schumer, the House Majority leader worked on that campaign with my mother. And that campaign was not specifically about anti-Vietnam war. It was anti-war. Anti-war was the anti-war movement. They didn't call it the anti-Vietnam war movement. They called it the anti-war movement because these people were trying to overthrow and topple the organization of our society around the idea of piracy, also known as the military-industrial complex. And, you know, these people got bought off because here's what happened. 
They lost. Eugene McCarthy went down quite unceremoniously amidst a huge beatdown of the left in Chicago under the stewardship of uh, Mayor uh, Daley, a Democrat, and they beat these protesters viciously on television live. And the anti-war movement was beat down, and Humphrey was the Democrat that ran in 68. Nixon was the Republican, and Nixon won, representing the silent majority. Which, you know, people are going to say that's the core of the Trump movement, and it probably is. So when the anti-war movement ended, these people, and I was in the room, and I've said this, so if you're a leftist and you're here for the first time, I want you to know my history. I was in the room in Minnesota when a group of intellectuals that worked at the University of Minnesota, including my father, sat down and came up with a multi-decade plan to turn Minnesota from a red state to the blue state that it is today. And they were very successful. They did it through the university and through the educational process. They knew exactly what they were doing. They wrote it down. They implemented it. And they took a long view of it. And they won here in Minnesota. And I, you know, I salute my mother and father. They had a plan. And um, the plan really, uh, come to Minnesota. You know, we've got uh, abortion uh, rights at birth for women. We're passing a euthanasia law now where people can, you know, take life and death matters into their own hands. We have a growing government here. Uh, We have a economy that is based on international trade, a farm economy, which is another reason why it works so well, because we're an export state. And after all, we're the headquarters of the largest private commodity trading company in the world. That's Cargill right here in my Senate district. I mean, you know, they, they, these people know how to make things work. They got these Cargill kids, the kids back in the 70s, they got them in the classroom and they turned them into Marxists, or at least they gave them the ideas of how to speak like Marxists. They're not really Marxists, okay? Let's leave that to the side. That's a BS story. They just can speak like Marxists, and that's if you're new here, I, w- I want to share with you, having been in the halls of power, the people that are fun in the left movement and the people that are fun in the right movement, they don't care who wins as long as the business model stays intact. And that business model is slavery, formerly chattel, chattel slavery, quite, quite a brutal start to our country. Now we have debt slavery. We're all debt slaves. Not all of us, of course. Most of us. Drugs. Drugs. Drugs are everywhere, legal and illegal, okay? So drugs, the drug business, the slavery business, and piracy, which is another way of saying war. War. So that's our business model. And as long as that slavery, drugs, and piracy business model stays in place, money keeps flowing uphill, and the shit keeps flowing downhill to me, the American citizen. And that's my preamble about this today. I want you to stay if you're new. If you're new, hang out, because you're going to find out this is a completely new formation of political thinking, or at least that's what I'm trying to do, and I'm asking for your help. Now, if you're in the live chat and you've been with me a long time, and thank you for your viewership and your listenership, thank you. Don't beat these people down if they come in and they're disruptive in the live chat. Let's listen to them. Because what are we really trying to do? We're trying to create a new political movement and convince people of the righteousness of our position. 
if we label them, if we judge against them, if we run them out of the live chat, we preclude the possibility of learning from them, of listening to them. That'll be a predicate for them listening to me and to listening to us. We have to listen to each other. We learn. That is the formation of our political institution, is that we take positions and we share back and forth ideas, and we come up with a better idea by listening to each other. Now, when our institutions of power become corrupted, okay, this becomes political theater, which is another big part of what I'm presenting here, is that we're looking at a Democrat, Republican, left, right, liberal, conservative, blue-red scam that draws all of our attention, all of our money into an industry, and nothing changes because the elected officials do not have as much power as we're led to believe they have. And we're going to talk a lot about that this week, about the administrative state and how things really work. And, you know, with all respect to everybody, you know, and people who, that have been watching me know this, I'm involved in the game. You know, when you're really involved in the game, like you have cases that go to the Supreme Court, when you do that level of involvement, you learn not out of a book. Nobody told me. I didn't see it on Morning Joe. I'm actually in the ring getting pummeled. So when you're in the ring taking a beating, that's how you learn. And it's not about getting knocked down. I get knocked down. I get back up. And that's what the American people need to do. We've been knocked down. We're in a terrible moment in American history. We hate each other. Time to rebuild our community and get back up and accept the glory of what America could be, what it is, and uh, it just goes back to our founding documents. Now, I know some of you are going to come in and you're going to say, you know, screw the founding documents. Okay, now we're really getting out into really a big paradigm shift because these founding documents go all the way back 5,700 years and are based on some religious ideas, you know, that would be the idea that our rights, our, our rights are natural, and they're granted to us by a creator. And those rights are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which here on the Professor Penn podcast, I view as a path of self-development. So this, for some of you, will be disturbing but let me read through it, and let's think about it even outside of its religious context. And just let's talk about thanksgiving and gratefulness as a way to feel good, as a way to enhance our well-being. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for creating the light and the dark. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for creating me in your image. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for making me an American. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for making me free. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for healing the blind. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for feeding the people. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for releasing the bound. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for raising up the downtrodden. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for creating the heavens and earth. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for providing for all my needs. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for directing my path. 
Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for our American courage. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for crowning America with glory. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for restoring strength to the weary. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for sending your Son to die on the cross that I might be saved. And let me comment for the anti-Christians that might be uh, watching for the first time. Yes, this is religious, but the idea of redemption goes beyond religion. So what I found in my life is I've made mistakes and I've needed forgiveness and redemption. What are the processes that bring that to me as a viable psychological palliative to the suffering that I feel. How are we going to do that? Well, this has worked for thousands of years. There's other ideas that work. I know that. I know that. And when I say thank you, you know, if you don't want to use a, a, a deity, how about just gratefulness? Gratefulness that we bring forth a good energy in our culture. Thankful that we're Americans. Thankful that we have food to eat. Thankful that I was able to walk out of my house this morning and not dodge a bunch of rounds from some uh, opposing force that was shooting at me, as is happening in many parts of the world. It's a lot to be thankful for. A lot to be thankful for. And then, personally, I always like to say this for myself. Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. Pardon me, my King, for I have willfully transgressed. For you pardon and forgive. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds, for you are gracious and ever willing to forgive. And again, not from the perspective necessarily of religion. I would like to overcome making mistakes in my life, something the religious call sin. So I'm trying to work at this later stage of my life away from those mistakes. And that's why I'm trying to speak gently. And when people slap me in the face on, the, on, on X, I try to come back at them as gently as I can. Um, I'm really not into the emotional violence I see there. It, you know, it's, it, it acts as a tool. How we use it is up to us as the American people. It can be a great opportunity for us to discourse and dialogue and share ideas and solve problems together, create community together. I will not allow paid operatives that dominate the discourse to divide me from my brother and sister Americans. Just not going to let them do it. You can hate me all you want. I'm not going to hate you back. Unless you put your hands on me. That's a different story. There is self-defense. But as I like to say, because I'm older, I remember this one and I like it, sticks and stones will hurt my bones, but names will never hurt me. And I also want to say we have to pay for this. And uh, one of the ways we do that is we're, we're uh, in the tire business. So I do want to say, and I, I have to say it, I, I want to thank Free People Radio for giving us this platform. I always urge people to get involved in their local political parties because this is an action political community about self-governance. So be it the Democrat Party or the Republican Party, they need smart people who are of goodwill and that have integrity because the parties are right now dominated by people who do not have goodwill and do not have integrity. And why do I say that? Well, it's very simple. I'm looking at the evidence. 
We're 34 trillion in debt. We got an open wound of a border. And we've been in an endless war my entire life. That's all I need for evidence that the people that are running the show don't have my, they don't have any goodwill towards me because that's not helping my family. So I just look at the outcomes. I don't look at what they say or how good looking they are or what concerts they go to or none of that matters to me. I, I don't even look at the polls. You know, people are on X, we're arguing about polls. And polls, polls, forget about the polls because someone's paid to poll. No, what we want, what I want, what this community is about is about individual American citizens getting involved in the game of politics. And if you know if you're on the right side, you can go to precinctstrategy.com. That's precinctstrategy.com for a tutorial about how to get in the game of politics. If you're on the left, you can go there too and just don't think of it as a right site. Think of it as an informational source about how you can actually get a stake in the game. This X thing, there's all these opinions, all these people complaining, but how many of us are really trying to affect change? Now, that's an infinite opportunity. There's letter writing. There's going to your school board. There's running for office. There's podcasting. There's being involved in the parties. There's being a perpetual poster on X in an uplifting and informative way so that people listen to you and in. in taking your information. I've get people argue with me all the time. And when they give me a, a quick, you know, middle finger and a, and, a, and a label, I just say to them, thank you very much for your opinion. But I got some people writing some really interesting critiques, criticizing my work. And boy, I think that's great because I get a chance to retort and then see their comeback. And I'm open to change. And I, you know, I see things all the time. They make me say, whoa, that's nasty. I need to think through what I'm doing here. But tire gets the way we pay for this, and everybody uses tires. And not everybody, but most of us still have cars. And if you like this content, you like Free People Radio, and you'd like to support this effort that I'm making to create an American community that is not defined by hatred, but it is defined by love, uh, if you'd like to support that, next time you need tires, go to tiregit.com. That's T-I-R-E-G-E-T dot com. And here's a one-minute short about TireGet. TireGet, T-I-R-E-G-E-T dot com. TireGet is here for the movement and for all the broadcasters and channels and stations that are presenting this content for you. TireGet is a online e-commerce platform where you can buy your tires. Now, everybody buys tires, or most of us buy tires. There's everything there that you need for your vehicles. All kinds of different brands, premium major brands, premium private label brands, every kind of tire. You go there, you pick your tire. We will ship the tires to the installer right by your house at no extra charge. You pay TireGet to have your tires installed. It's a one-stop shop for everything you need in tires and the best customer service in the tire business. So the next time you buy tires, think of TireGet. You gotta buy your tires from someone, please buy them from us. All right, welcome back. The soap selling is done for the day. And I'm going to go on to one other uh, quick issue. Uh, we talked about the eight key concepts uh, on a previous podcast. I think it was 89. Uh, and that's a, an Asian idea. Wound in Asian culture has nothing to do with Christianity. It really doesn't. But that doesn't mean it doesn't have validity or... or uh, ideas that are informative 
And those eight key concepts are courage, and concentration, and endurance, and honesty, and humility, and self-control, and the ability to tense and relax, which is a well-being concept, and then timing, speed control. These are the eight key concepts for enhancing your well-being and lengthening your days from the Asian perspective. Courage. Isn't that strange? That's number one. Number one, courage. Concentration. Well, if we're going to get anything done, we got to concentrate on it, right? Endurance. We have to endure honesty, which is the basis for all spiritual development. Humility. What does it profit me if I know a lot and I'm an ass? And I've been through a period like that in my life. I got a, one of my kids is so brilliant. And uh, this kid, he's really brilliant. Brilliant. And, then as you know, young. So certain arrogance came with the brilliance. It did not take long for life to rip, him, rip his ass right down back to reality, which is a great process because he's young. And, I, you know, I want him to be well. But anytime arrogance um, works its way into our lives, you know, the greater the pride, the greater the fall. Control. We need, so there's, you know, and on X, self-control, come on. You know, being a tough guy from a keyboard, eh, it's not so tough. So why? What's the point? Let's. It's a culture. We we make that culture. We the American people. Let us. My suggestion. Let us elevate the discourse and the dialogue. So we build community. Why do we want to destroy our community? What is that all about? I mean, you know, I'm reading people say, "Oh, Professor Penn, you're not a professor." Correct. It's a stage name. But I'm educated, and if you hang around here, you're going to find out I'm very educated come from educated people, generations of them. Education was baked into the cake. But why would I be labeled as mega because I talk about national sovereignty or uh, peace versus war? That's, those are not mega ideas. And that's, that's part of the scam, right? Let's make all this about Donald Trump and MAGA so nobody starts thinking about the ideas. If you're on the left, okay, if you're on the left, I know you care about the exploitation of children. There's a relationship between that open border and the exploitation of children. Let's not be afraid to look at that. Let's think it through. Let's look at the allocation of resources. If you're on the left and you're way on the left, then everybody's going to have the same thing. But there's a lot of people that are a little more centrist, that have net worth, that have 401ks. They don't want to lose everything. I think it's reasonable to talk about that. That's not a left-right issue. That's a family issue. And then the well-being issues that are associated with this. Come on, debt? We're $34 trillion in debt? That's not a well-being thing to drag along with us. That's a very unwell place to be, that kind of debt. And... That's not a left or right issue, or at least it doesn't need to be a left or right issue. It can just be an American issue. Why are we so in debt? Who's benefiting from this? And how do we readjust our social uh, safety nets and our allocation of resources in a way that's beautiful 
so that we actually have some community about it because we want to take care of the least among us. That's, that's, that's having empathy. I have it. You know, I have it. And I think a lot of the people that have a faith in a, a creator have empathy because they know who they are. Now, if you don't believe in God, let me just share with you, if you really have faith, really have it, and you've given over to it, gentleness is part of the deal. Uh, working with the poor is part of the deal. Because you have faith. I mean, that's that's a requirement of, of having faith. There is cultural expectations. It's not just saying, oh, I believe in God. That does, that's, that's doesn't do anything. That's like I was uh, conversing with somebody in X. He said, most of the people want, he said, most American people want peace. Great. That's a hope. Hope's not a strategy. What are we doing to create the conditions that will create peace? You know, if we have faith, what are we doing to operationalize our faith on an everyday basis, in a minute to minute basis, in a second to second basis? I mean, this is a, this is a high bar to say, a person is, is, a, is a man or a woman of faith. And I like to relate this Asian concept, these eight key concepts, to our traditional um, texts. Not to be a preacher, not to thump the Bible, but what we've done here is, as a culture, is we have eliminated the wisdom that's associated with our you know, founding documents and the documents that those founding documents are built on, which is really the 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 old new testaments so i'm just going to read this not to not to get religious i just want to point this out finally my brothers be strong in the lord and in the power of his might in other words our strength comes from an unseen place that we don't understand put on the whole armor of god in other words be good seek goodness in all you do that's the armor that we might be able to stand against evil. You know, if you're doing good, it's not hard to resist evil. And look at our country. It's evil everywhere, right? Let's be honest about it. Crime, killing other people, is traditionally thought of as not a good thing. For we fight not just against other humans, but against powers and the rulers of the darkness of this world against wickedness in high places. Now, if you're on the left, you certainly agree with that. That's where the left come, came from, fighting wickedness in high places. That's what coalesced the left. Wherefore, we take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. The point is, we're in a very difficult moment in American history and in world history. There's a lot of fear. People write me on X and say they're afraid. If we work progressively to ground ourselves in a knowledge of life, in the search for truth, our fears may be allayed. So I just want to start out with that because when people write me they're scared, that you know, that's really upsetting to me. And why shouldn't they be scared? Let's think about the news that matters. Breaking news. We're at war. Did you notice it? 
You know, when I drove to work today, it didn't seem like we were at work. Everybody was driving along. It was great. People were stopping for coffee at Starbucks. Great. And we're such a powerful country, we can go to war, and the American citizens don't even know we're at war. It happens in faraway places. But, I mean, most of us know that the United States of America, our country, that'd be us, we the people, are now engaged in a war in the Middle East where we're bombing, bombing, bombing Iranian proxy groups throughout the Middle East, particularly in Syria and in Iraq. We'll talk about that again soon, but also in Yemen. And, you know, this is massive destruction is going on, and it's just starting. It wasn't like it was one and done. They're bombing every day. And, you know, just to share with you my own opinion, this is my own opinion. You know, the U.S. military drops a bomb every three seconds. So, you know, at least I've read that. Now, people are going to get upset with me, and I need to be careful with these kind of comments because I don't remember where I read it and what the source is. But we do have an $888 billion defense budget, and that's the budget we know of, not the hidden budget we don't know of. So almost a trillion dollars is going into killing things. So there's a lot of killing going on. And my theory is this announcement of this bombing, there's nothing being announced here that hasn't been going on for years. We've been bombing people in the Middle East since 2003, since 1991, ongoingly. Let's go back a little farther. Since the Africa Corps occupied North Africa and the United States Army under General Patton and the British under Montgomery fought their way across North Africa and expelled the Germans from North Africa. Well, let's go back farther than that. The British and the Ottomans fighting. You know, these people have been taking an ass-kicking from foreign powers for hundreds of years, and we're going to talk about that this week. We need to know why these antagonists, the Houthis, and the Iranian proxy groups, and the Persians, and all these groups, the why are they so anti-American? Why are they so anti-American? Why do they hate me so much? Come on, they have children too. They really hate me this much? Why? Why? They just pop up out of nowhere because I'm not a Muslim? No, that might be part of it. Might be part of it. Things are multi-causal. In the meantime, while we're at war, open war in uh, the Middle East, in Europe, we're at war also, a little bit more tricky still at this point. We have plenty of our contractors, boots on the ground in the Ukraine. You know, we read about it every once in a while. Some American dies there, and it turns out he was a ex-military. He's, the, he's not there by accident, okay? I mean, we could do several podcasts on just how this whole thing works. The U.S. government has outsourced a lot of its killing. They, You know, it's almost like uh, education, like education. You know, you go to public school, go to grade school, you get good grades, go to, you know, uh, what do they call that? Junior high school, middle school. No, they call it middle school. Then you go to high school, get good grades. Oh, you go to university, get good grades, four years. Okay, now you got your four-year degree, and you can wipe your ass with that. It's basically meaningless, okay? We know that. If we don't know that, we're going to find it out. I have five kids. They all went to college. That four-year degree is toilet paper. But, but, the best and the brightest get chosen to move on. They get to go to medical school. They get to go to law school. 
They might get to get a PhD in physics or biochemistry. The entire process, the entire process is to find those people that are the best and the brightest in that educational setting. They become the elites that run our institutions. Well, the military works the same way. You know, people go in, they perform, they do their deal. Some of them end up being war fighters. Some end up uh, driving trucks. Some people fly planes. Some people are working in the kitchen. And the best of them, the ones that are really good at it, the ones that are really good at military matters. Maybe you've met someone like this before, some of my best friends, actually. They graduate from military service, and they become contractors, special operators, off the books. And they're all over the Ukraine fighting. It's not allegedly the U.S. military. It's some of our best people, the people that have gone to graduate school and killing and got their graduate degrees, and they like killing, and they're very good at it, and they get paid very highly to go kill Russians, and they're Americans, and we're there. And the Russians know it and they don't like it. But that's not good enough, because right now the largest ever NATO exercise is underway. Uh, there's a name for it, and I don't remember what it is. Uh, let's see here. Exercise Steadfast 24. Oh, excuse me. Exercise Steadfast Defender 24, as in 2024. It's called Exercise Steadfast Defender 24. It's the largest NATO exercise since the Cold War. 90,000 troops from 31 member states are taking part in this exercise. It's fenced as a practice. Practice. They're practicing. What they're possibly really doing is redeploying 90,000 troops closer to the border with Russia to prepare for a general war in Europe. Could be. We don't know. And for those of us who are going to put in the live chat, I'm wrong. How do you know? If you know because you're in the military, it's a secret you're not supposed to tell me. Everybody else is guessing. I'm saying I'm guessing. It could be practice. It could be a redeployment of NATO forces closer to the border with Russia. It could be an invasion of Russia, sneak attack. And the Russians have to think that way. You know, 90,000 troops are posting up right on their border. They better be thinking it might be an invasion. It's not good for keeping things peaceful. It's inflammatory. It's escalatory. Oh, and they just keep on going with it. The Czech government announced the biggest single purchase ever of F-35 stealth jets since I saw you. I think it's $7 billion. No, $6.6 billion. It's a nice score. $6.6, call it $7 billion. The profit on that's got to be $3 billion. $3 billion. Hey. Didn't get in my pocket, but somebody got the $3 billion. I guess if you own a 401k and you're invested in a broad index fund and the market keeps going up, you're okay with it, right, that the market's going up because we're killing people? Hey, you know what? Blood money. F-35s blanket the world. We've got F-35s, the most modern fighter jet in the world. They're all over the world. We've got them positioned everywhere. They call that, if you go online, the F-35 blankets the world in security. Or if you're on the other side of the football, the F-35 blankets the world in insecurity. Insecurity. 
And for the people that I'm arguing with about Empire on X, and if you're new here, I'm just against Empire for two reasons. The first thing is, it's not my empire. We're defending the British Empire. And I got something to say about that. We're stupid to do that. Dumb. And number two, I don't want to live in a country that's based its economy on killing people, which I argued with the guy on X about this. And I watched Aaron Burnett right on CNN say, oh, all these jobs in the military industrial complex, it's so good for America, such high paying jobs. We're based in our economy. The only thing we're good at is building weapons of war. You know, hey, that sucks. I'm in the tire business. Let's build tires. You could make the case people are still dying from that. But at least it's a slow death with a lot of freedom to drive wherever I want to go. It's not I'm sitting in my hut and a precision munition blows my family to shreds. And then there's a picture of it, which we all enjoy watching. You know, this is sick, in my opinion. Sick. Just sick. Sick. I'll say it again. It's sick. This podcast is about the politics of human well-being. My first concern is the well-being of American citizens. But, you know, when some Iraqi is uh, killed by a bomb that my tax dollars paid for, I'm not for that. And we're going to talk about why is it Iraq? Why is it Syria? Why is it Jordan? Why is it Yemen? Why is it Ethiopia? We need to look at that. And just finally, finally, the United States has agreed to put nuclear weapons back into England. And they haven't been there for many years. And why are they putting them in there? To tell the Russians, screw up. They don't need to be there. It's just a symbolic reposition of nuclear weapons right into the crown. Because really what we're doing here is we've picked up on a fight that's gone back to 1805 between Britain and Russia. And we're backing the Britons up here. When I say the Britons, we're backing the Britons up. Okay? I, if you got ears to hear, you know what I'm saying. We're backing them up, and we're basically telling the Russians, hey, screw off. I have children. I don't want to see them die. So, you know, that's how I feel about it. And I'm going to say this again. If you're a modern leftist in 2024, the root of your movement was about anti-war. Please go back and look at the roots of the anti-war left movement. It was called the New Left in the 1960s. All the people that created the leftism that you're in today come out of that tradition. It was galvanized and coalesced around anti-war. How is it that the left is so in on empire? How'd that happen? Let's think that one through. Because everywhere is war. Everywhere is war. And let's talk about the war of the day, the one that's getting headlines today. And that's, those are the things that are going on over in the Middle East. And this is really all about the Suez Canal. The Suez Canal is an artificial sea-level waterway in Egypt connecting the Mediterranean Sea to the Red Sea. It's 120 miles long. It was envisioned in the 1800s. In 1858, a country was a company was formed to create the Suez Canal. Construction of the canal lasted from 1859 to 1869. Big project. That's a 10-year project, right? And the canal officially opened on the 17th of November, 1869. All of this that you're seeing is about this canal. All of it. 
I mean, this is all about the canal. And why? Because the canal brings wealth from Asia to Europe. And when the canal was built, it was built by a consortium of British and French companies, colonial powers that had occupied, you know, India had India was occupied by the crown. It was a colony, and the crown was extracting wealth from India and extracting wealth from China. China was also colonized, and they were just looking for a fast way to get that wealth that they stole, stole from the indigenous people. They wanted to get it back to Europe as fast as they could and put it down a mine shaft where they'll pull it out when they're ready to. We have no idea how many trillions and trillions of dollars the Europeans have squirreled away down mine shafts through their hundreds of years of colonial enterprise. We just don't know, and they're not going to tell us. And that Suez Canal is still there. So we talked about this, and we'll talk about it again if you're new. The United States, after World War II, took over the maintenance of the empire. Now, we did it under what was called the Atlantic Charter, which called for the self-determination of all peoples, and we did it under what was called the post-World War II Democrat liberal order. But let's look where the wars are and where the flashpoints are today. Ukraine. The first war in the Ukraine between Britain and Russia was 1805. Then there was the Crimean War in the 1850s. Russia was occupied after World War I, including by 13,000 American troops that were garrisoned in Vladivostok. The Nazis invaded Russia in 1942. Then we had the Cold War, and now we have the Ukraine War. And what was the, the unifying factor of all these wars? You know, Russia didn't attack Georgia, and I mean the United States, Georgia. They weren't in Greenland. All these wars happened in Russia or on Russia's borders. So, you know, this claim, this which could be propaganda, I don't know because I'm not in Vladimir Putin's head. And, in fact, Tucker Carlson, as we speak here today, is trying to interview him, and the left is going bananas. Don't even let Tucker back in the country. Stop him. He's a traitor. He's a Russian apologist. No, it's called journalism. He's a brave man that went to a foreign country that we're in conflict with, possibly to interview the leader. Now, people are going to say the leader's from the KGB and whatever he says is a lie. And that may be true. But could I please listen to the lies that are coming directly out of his mouth instead of the lies that are at the Washington Post and the New York Times? Because everybody who's doing everything, including this podcast, has an editorial content. So let's listen to the source material. Why are we so afraid of listening to this guy? I'll tell you one reason people are going to be afraid of it on the left. They know he's very educated and very articulate. And, that's, and he speaks English. Now, I'm sure if he's interviewed, he'll speak in Russian. But I'm not sure. Let me not fortune tell. Maybe he'll just break out in English so we can all hear exactly what he's saying. And what he's saying is going to be disturbing. And the left doesn't want that kind of information spread out amongst the people, the people, we have to self-govern in this. And let me just say this again if you're new. What this podcast is about is self-governance, being involved in politics however you can. I don't listen to what quote-unquote MAGA says or quote-unquote what Trump says 
or quote-unquote what Schumer says, or quote-unquote what Johnson or Scalise or Bannon or uh, Rachel Maddow. I don't listen to it as the gospel. I listen to it for information, and I'm forming my own opinion. I don't want to be a victim of other people's manipulations. I'll let them manipulate me only insofar as I want to understand what they're saying. And then I want to do my own research. I want to do my own effort to figure out what's really going on. So I want to go back a little bit. Uh, Can you please play number one? It's 29 seconds. It's quick. So little attention should have been paid to the prophetic warning in 1936 of Haile Selassie, emperor of Ethiopia, when he implored the old League of Nations to punish Mussolini for invading his country. I am here today to claim justice. The problem submitted to the assembly is the very existence of the League of Nations. International morality is at stake. God and history will remember your judgment. The League to its own destruction. So little attention should have been paid. That's good. Thank you so much. So, you know, this was Haile Selassie, or as uh, he was affectionately known in his village, Rastafari. That's Rastafari. For those of any of us who are into reggae music, which I am, that's Ras himself. That's the Ras. When he became the king of Ethiopia, he took on the name Haile Selassie. And where is Ethiopia? Well, we're bombing Yemen, which is a constructed com- country. And if you go back, one or two podcasts, if you're interested, we take a deep dive into, I'm not a deep dive, we take a cursory dive into the politics of Yemen, which was a British colony, a British colony. Why did the British occupy Yemen and the port of Aden? They did it to control the mouth of the Red Sea to strategically command and control the Suez Canal access. And on the other side from Yemen, a stone's throw away on the map. Actually, it's kind of a long way if you're actually in the waterway. But right across from Yemen is Somalia, which is of quite a bit of recent history. Black Hawk Dawn, there's a great movie about American troops, you know, in a firefight in Mogadishu. And we have right here in Minnesota represented Representative Ilhan Omar representing the Somalians and the Minnesotans in her district, District here in Minnesota, that'd be Minneapolis. And we have, you know, Eritrea, which was a part of the area that was kind of not down with being part of Ethiopia. And Ethiopian, Eritrea fought a very brutal war with a lot of famine and a lot of mass migration, terrible. And then there's Ethiopia itself, which is one of the longest, in fact, it is the longest country for history that we identify, some scholars identify, because there's going to be arguments about this, right? But some scholars identify this as the longest independent country in world history, Ethiopia, over 4,000 years history of an independent Ethiopia. And Ethiopia sits right on the other side of that mouth of the Red Sea across from Yemen. And this area is completely disrupted by the British and by the Italians and by the French. And this last piece was uh, Haley Selassie addressing what was called at the time in 1936 
the League of Nations appealing to the League to intervene and protect Ethiopia from an unprovoked attack by the Italians. The fascists, Mussolini, who sought to occupy Ethiopia, they had a secret agreement with the British. The British were all good with this because they wanted to control access to the Suez Canal. They didn't want any pushback. Now, the Ethiopians and the Italians had fought a war previously in 1896. It's called the First Abyssinian War, the First Italian-Ethiopian War. And believe it or not, the Ethiopians actually defeated the Italians in that first war in 1896. And that war where Ethiopia defended its territory, defended its borders, is very important in the history of Africa. And Pan-Africanism, it's the first time an African country defeated a Western colonial power in combat. So, you know, Africans look back on that historically and say, wow, that was a change. We actually won that one, but not to be outdone. The Italians came back in 35, and they fought a war from 35 to 37. They actually defeated the Ethiopian army at that time. They had the support of the British. <laughs> you know, and it was interesting. The Germans, who eventually were allies of the Italians, they actually supported the Ethiopians with weapons. This is how twisted this colonial stuff was going on. These people, the Germans, the Dutch, the English, the Spanish, the French, the Russians, these people were playing a game with each other about who was going to steal the most shit. That's called piracy. They're like bank robbers. These people fought on the way to the bank robbery. They fought on the way after the bank robbery. They sucked, all of them. And when the case is made by people of color that white people are evil, it's an easy position to take when you look at how these countries functioned. And you, you, know, you want to say, well, white people really aren't evil, and they're not. But the ones on these payrolls were, because they went into these countries and created the conditions for famine, for slavery, tremendous disease, war, genocide. You know, this was brutal. And in this area where we're at war today, where the United States is defending what you and I are paying for is we're defending the Suez Canal, which brings goods to Europe. So guess what we're doing? We're the muscle. We're the muscle for a European business strategy. Isn't that great? Kind of like being a bouncer. We don't own the bar. We're just bouncing there. Hey, we're tough guys, right? That's fun, isn't it? Fun being tough. You know what happens to bouncers? They get old and somebody knocks their teeth out because you can't win every day. You keep in that, you know, I was just with one of my best friends. This guy was not kidding around. Can't tell you his history. One of my closest, closest friends. I actually love him. When this guy talks about going to war, he's not talking. He's a virtuoso in this area, a virtuoso. And he looked at me, because he's retired now, finally, and he said to me, you know, if you keep going to the casino, eventually you're going to lose. And after 25 years of being in the casino, he decided it was time to cash his chips and come home, and he's had five children with a beautiful lady, and he's living a beautiful life, and God bless him. But that's what happens. When you, when you live by that sword, A, eventually, eventually, the clock is ticking, America. So the Italians won that second war with the Ethiopians, and they occupied Ethiopia. And I'm saying this because it's very important for us to understand how this area has been scrambled by colonial powers. 
you know, the Yemen thing. Yemen was not a country. It was a constructed country which came out of the British occupying southern Yemen and using the Saudis, the Wahhabis and the Sauds to screw up northern Yemen, which was called South Arabia. And, you know, we're living in this blowback now, blowback. And we had the blowback on the Ethiopian side years ago. And I'm not saying that that's not stable or unstable. It's not stable because the, the, the British and the colonial powers created or they exacerbated. I don't want to say they created. That's wrong. And sometimes they created it. But what they did was they exacerbated pre-existing tribal and religious differences, arming both sides and creating the kind of blood feuds that go on for generations. And that's how a very small number of colonial operatives could go into these big populations and get what they wanted. And what did they want? The chaos that prevents the locals from organizing and taking control of that waterway so that they have a seat at the table. That's what this whole thing is about, preventing the local populations from having a seat at the table. And I want to talk about this now in terms of something we're all going to like, I hope, and then I want to go into it at great depth. Because when Selassie went to the League of Nations in 36, they did nothing, and that was part of the falling apart of the security arrangements that existed between the two world wars. And actually... There's just one world war, and it's been going on for a very long time. So let's not come up with artificial distinctions. But Selassie went in and begged, begged for the support of the international community for the rule of international morality, the rule of international morality to prevent the Italians from conquering his country just to extract wealth out of it, piracy, that business model, that colonial business model of slavery, drugs, and piracy. And we're still fighting this fight. And some of these words and some of these ideas are equally important today as they were when Selassie came back in 1963 and addressed the then quite hopeful and quite new United Nations. And his speech there, I want to talk about it and talk about some of my personal opinions about what it meant and how it's changed and how these things developed. But first... Let's look at um, how Bob Marley, the great Jamaican artist, philosopher, man of peace, took this speech that Selassie gave in 63 to the United Nations and turned it into a fantastic piece of music. Can you please play this, number two? Finally and permanently 
discredited and abundant. Well, everywhere is war. This your war. And until there's no longer first class nor second class citizens of any nation. Until the color of a man's skin is of no more significance to the color of his eyes. I've got to say war. And until the basic human rights are equally guaranteed to all without regard to race. This your war. Cause until that day, the dream of lasting peace, world citizenship, and the rule of international morality will remaining but a fleeting illusion to be pursued but never attained. Well, everywhere is war. This your war. War in the east. War in the west. War up north. War down south. This a war. Rumors of war. And until the ignoble and unhappy regime that hold our brothers in Angola, in Mozambique, South Africa, yeah, subhuman bondage, yeah, has been doubled, yeah, utterly destroyed. Well, everywhere is war. Well, I love that. Um, I love Bob Marley. And uh, he was taking a, a speech that was given by um, Rastafari, Haley Selassie, which he gave to the United Nations General Assembly on October 4th, 1963. And you're going to say, Professor Penn, you're not a globalist. Why do you like that? And I want to just clarify some of this historically so that we understand that as long as the belief exists that one race is superior and another is inferior, we will stay at war and that this belief morphs itself into different kinds of forms and shapes like all this hatred I see on X between the two groups. These two groups think the, each one is better than the other one. The right thinks, you know, the mega people think the left are libtards, and the left thinks that mega is stupid. And, you know, it's the same thing. It's just kind of going into a different format. And as long as this kind of thinking prevails, everywhere is war. 
And Selassie showed up at the United Nations, and he said, this is a quote, 27 years ago, as emperor of Ethiopia, I mounted the rostrum in Geneva, Switzerland, to address the League of Nations and to appeal for relief from the destruction which had been unleashed against my defenseless nation by a fascist invader. I spoke then both to and for the conscience of the world. My words went unheeded, and history testifies to the accuracy of the warning that I gave in 1936. In 1936, I declared that it was not the covenant of the League that was at stake, but international morality. Undertakings, I said then, are of little worth if the will to keep them is lacking. It's very critical. These are African countries that were conquered over and over again by colonial powers that extracted their wealth, killed their people, destroyed their communities and their cultures, enslaved them. I mean, we're talking about really skullduggerous things went on here. You know, we live in this kind of, oh, it's I see it on television. You know, the thought of slavery for me, because I relive this in my mind constantly because of the exodus from Egypt, uh, the thought of slavery, it doesn't capture being a slave, right? These people were enslaved. So what they were doing was they were taking the words of the Atlantic Charter, which we've studied, where President Roosevelt forced Winston Churchill to give up empire and to allow the self-determination of all peoples. These Africans were taking these words, the rule of international morality, which then became vested in the United Nations, and they were, okay, guys, if you want to have globalized governance, and that means you're going to quit raping and robbing and enslaving, go for it. And they were trying to hold them to their words that until the philosophy which holds one race superior and another, this is exactly what he spoke, and Marley made it into a beautiful, beautiful song, that until the philosophy which holds one race superior and another inferior is finally and permanently discredited and abandoned, that until there's no longer first-class and second-class citizens of any nation, that until the color of a man's skin is of no more significance than the color of his eyes, there's a war, that until the basic human rights are equally guaranteed to all without regard to race, there's a war, that until that day the dream of lasting peace and world citizenship. See, he's talking about world citizenship. You know, I don't like the idea of world citizenship, but in 1963, as a dialectic opposition to colonialism, if the whites were going to give up this, this colonial enterprise and commit themselves to world citizenship, hey, we're going for it because we don't have nuclear weapons. We don't have submarines. We don't have battleships. We would like to have peace for our people. So what Selassie was doing was using the impulse that was prevalent in the West in 1963 
because we were so close to World War II where 88 million people died in five years. There was a, a movement away from war seeking to create the kind of international institutions that would undergird peace. And what Selassie didn't know at the time, and he's, you know, he's long dead, if he was alive today, he would be a staunch critic of the United Nations because world citizenship has turned out to be a scam where governance is being taken far from our neighborhood, far from our families, where war has been regulated much the way the United States has regulated cigarette smoking. You know, if cigarettes were so bad for me, why can I still buy them? Well, I tell you why I can buy them. The government got in on it. They regulate it. They regulate it so that the deaths go down, but there's still plenty of money to be made off of tobacco. Well, you know, compared to the military, tobacco is a piss in the stream. The military-industrial complex is regulated by the United Nations. The United Nations says what wars are just. The United Nations says what wars are unjust. The United Nations is regulating war. It has not eliminated war. It's just regulated war for profit and for control. It's terrible. So it's not the idea of world citizenship that's wrong. And it's not the institution of the United Nations that's wrong. It's the people who hold those positions of power within the institution. We're going to talk about those people this week. We know who they are, we know where they come from, and we know what they believe. And what they believe is so different than what I believe or what the majority of the people on this planet believe. We've got to really look at this now and recognize how few of them there are and why they fear. Why does the left put so much emphasis in labeling Donald Trump and MAGA as Cretans, idiots, losers? Because it's a movement of self-governance. I'm not here to pitch Trump if you're a leftist. And if you've been around this podcast for a long time, you know I don't do that. I'm not pitching Trump or MAGA. I'm pitching self-governance. I'm pitching the search for truth. I'm pitching community, and I'm pitching nonviolence. That's my pitch. So if you're for war, if you're for debt, and you're for slavery, slave labor, that comes with an open border, Hey, we can talk it through because this is not a partisan issue. When a border is open, all kinds of bad things happen, and they're happening. When the country's at debt, $34 trillion, all kinds of bad things happen, and it's happening. And when we're fighting an endless war since 19-whatever or 5,000 years ago, when all we do as humans is fight with each other, come on. I'm going to ask you, how many of you have been in a fight? I mean, a real fight where, you know, your eyes well up and, you know, tears come out your eyes because you got hit in the nose or, you know, guns came out and, you know, you survived because of the will of God. How many people have actually done that? And if we're outsourcing that to a very small group of Americans, you think that's going to go on forever? You think forever there's going to be a small pool of Americans that are willing to go die for money? And that's going to get the job done in a world where conflict is expanding exponentially? No, my children are going to get drafted. Your children are going to get drafted. And if you're going to say you're ex-military or you're military and you want your kids to serve, okay, that's cool. 
But I know a lot of military members that don't want that to happen. They don't want to live by the gun. In fact, a real, a real player just told me he's so proud that he's got a job now where he doesn't have to carry a gun to make money. Boy, that's something, isn't it? So we're a community. We're a community here, and I hope that the live chat's going smooth, and I hope that we can talk to each other because I get this feedback. It's great feedback, and I want to read one. Um, not going to mention this gentleman's name, but it's out there on the comments. You can go find it because he puts his name out there. And he says, good evening, Professor Penn. I just walked in and got to where I could sit down and listen and pay attention, and I already appreciate what you're saying. I'm sure the podcast is already uh, well done, of course. I thank you, and I said you did it. I think you said you did it this morning, but I just want to say one thing. I really appreciate how your show, in your show, is that you emphasize the importance to the listeners of looking into these topics and researching them for ourselves, to see it for ourselves. You always say you have to see it for yourself so you can get a full appreciation of the knowledge that you'll gain. And I agree with that so much. And I agree that you really have to look at things from both sides and weigh out the information to form your own understanding because we live in a world that is not necessarily black and white, right and wrong, good and bad. And it's also important to realize that we're not all going to see things exactly the same way, and that is okay. That is how it's supposed to be. What is important is to see value of different perspectives as well as your own in order to have a well-rounded worldview. I'm a firm believer that I can learn from every person that I encounter regardless of how much I agree or disagree with them. And I just want to thank this uh, participant for this very uplifting comment because uh, this really captures what we're trying to do here. We're trying to look at issues. Oh, I have editorial content. I mean, I mean I'm not trying to hide from you. I, I want peace. I want to end the endless war. I want to turn debt into assets. And I believe we need to have spiritual borders. I believe those things. And that's my editorial perspective that runs through all of the podcasts. I believe in human well-being. I think those issues, having a spiritual border is good for my well-being. No spiritual borders, there's no well-being. That's just the way it works. I don't know why it works that way. I didn't make the world. But if you don't have any borders, you're going to get sick. Like, let me give you an example. If you sit down with a 100-pound bag of sugar, and you consume it this week, and you buy another 100-pound bag of sugar next week, and you keep consuming 100-pound bags of sugar because you have no spiritual border against 100-pound bag, bags of sugar, hey, there's a very high chance that you're going to get adult-onset diabetes. That's not me making it up, and I hope YouTube doesn't get mad at me. I think that it's fairly well baked into the literature that excessive use of sugar can contribute to adult-onset diabetes. I, I don't think I'm saying anything controversial. That's no spiritual border. And if we're in debt, we're in debt. We don't have anything. That's certainly not good for my well-being. And, of course, you know, war, getting shot, getting shot, getting beat up is definitely not good for my well-being. So our politics is about what conditions do we need to uh, create to enhance human well-being. That's what we're doing. And this, this particular very uplifting correspondence where we're getting a community of people together that think this way 
and we're getting together on X. I'm actually on X now, and there's a lot of new people here because of it. We have an ecosystem, a political ecosystem. We have Free People Radio, where we broadcast. We have a political action thing going on here in Minnesota, where we're working to enhance participation of American citizens in self-governance. It's a grassroots, door-knocking kind of a deal. It's real political action. It's called community organizing. You know, they said Barack Obama was a community organizer. None of us knew what that meant in 2007 and 2008. What the hell is a community organizer? Well, we know now. We know now, and we're organizing our community to bring about enhanced human well-being. And that's not a partisan concept. That kind of, when the starting point is, how do we make people healthier and live longer? That's a unifying concept. So we have a grassroots organization here on the ground. We have a broadcast element to what we're doing. We're a political ecosystem. And we really believe in peer-to-peer communication. So let me just say before we go by it, every state has a process and a path of self-governance. In Minnesota, it's called the caucus system. On February 27th, in just a few weeks, Minnesota will hold its Democrat and Republican caucuses. Every Minnesotan citizen who is a legal and lawful resident of the state and is an American citizen can go to their caucus, which will be at their local high school, most likely, or community center, and meet with other people in their neighborhood and make their political will felt. Now, this could seem a little bit intimidating, but I assure you that if you go, kind people will be there to help you through the process. It's only made complicated, like the word caucus. What the hell is that? It's called a community meeting. Caucus makes it, you know, what's a caucus? No, it's a community meeting where you and your neighbors will meet in a room together to vote about certain things of importance to all of us. And you can express your will. You can actually get a seat at the table. You can become a delegate, which means you're elected by your neighbors to vote in matters related to our self-governance. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful process of self-becoming. It's a beautiful process of self-development. It's a beautiful process of self-governance. So on February 27th in Minnesota, please find your caucus. And if you'd like some help, come into the live chat or go to one of the ways to get in touch with me, and I'll help you get organized. We want to help Minnesota self-govern. Self-governance. That's what our country is all about. It's really about morality. Self-governance about, is about our personal morality, our willingness to take some of our time to do something good for our neighborhood, for our state, for our country. And uh, let's just take a look at number three. Number three. Start at one minute in. Can you start at one minute in? Thank you. Ambassador Nikki Haley joins us now to react. Ambassador, I know you were traveling when we were talking to the parents, but you were coming into studio. 
What's your reaction? Pretty amazing 48 hours after learning of their daughter's death, they can still speak about it. I mean, my heart is broken and I'm angry. You know, you look, it's not just those three amazing heroes, it's also the two Navy SEALs. And so you talk about we've lost these five lives, dozens injured. Why did it have to come to this? 165 strikes. Why was there a second strike? Why wasn't something done in the very beginning? And my husband's deployed. We expect America to protect them. And Joe Biden did not protect those soldiers. And, you know, if this isn't the wake up call, that we've got to get out of this chaos in America and we've got to start focusing, this is it. Because we are going to have, you're just going to see Iran escalate. It's only going to get worse from here. We have to start riding this ship. I'm sure I don't have to tell you that they're meeting right now, Iraqi officials, with U.S. officials, about us getting out of the area. What would uh, President Nikki Haley say if Iraq says we need you to leave? I know we're there at their invite, but they begged us to come back after the rise of ISIS. But is this the right time to leave? Well, keep in mind, we have special operations there. The key has typically been special operations to know what's happening with terrorists there. What we do need to do is say, what else do we need to do? First of all, the second Biden lifted the sanctions, the worst thing he ever did. On Iran. Because he fueled, yes, because he fueled Hamas, he fueled Houthis, he fueled Hezbollah, and Iran was the better for it. So we first need to get those sanctions back on Iran the way we should. China's giving them billions. We've got to stop that. The second thing is take out those centers that are allowing those missiles to hit. Take out the drone areas in Iraq and Syria that's allowing we know where that they to are. happen. We know where they are. And then the third thing is, we don't need to go and hit Iran hard. You need to hit them smart. Take out a couple of the IRGC members making these decisions. The, Iran doesn't care whether they lose fighters. They'll get more. They don't care if they lose missiles. They'll get more. What they do care about is if they lose their money and if they lose their leadership. That's what we need to be focused on. So we even on. know a proxy force reportedly used the drone that killed our people. And even though it's a proxy force, the Houthi rebels that are targeting our ships and our ally ships, you're saying now's the time to hit Iran? Now's the time to hit their leaders. It's different. Don't go and bomb the what country. What about their infrastructure? The infrastructure in Iraq and Syria. You start with that first. You do the sanctions and you take out a couple of their leaders. That's the way in you start. In their country? In their, if they're in their country or you do like Soleimani when they left the country, you figure out where they are. Our special operations can do that. And then you take them out. That will send a message. We've got to do this immediately and make sure that we let them know. For Biden to say, oh, That's you know, good. they're not going to do something else. That's or, good. That's uh, Nikki Haley. She's uh, running for the Republican uh, endorsement for the presidential race in 2024. I thought of, I didn't think about this when I first saw it, but she was dressed in black and white. Probably an accident, but as a human being, I'm a meaning-making machine. And Nikki Haley is really all about black and white. She represents the neocon military-industrial complex. She's really the same person as people that are on the left that are representing the same idea. And what are we representing here? Well, first of all, she said something that I thought was She's talking about assassinating uh, IRGC senior leadership, which is exactly what President Trump did. He took out Soleimani in the fourth year of his uh, term, and she thinks that that's going to make a difference. These people uh, will repopulate any of their lower echelon folks that we kill. As she said, they can get more money for more missiles because they're on the Chinese and Russian payrolls. 
their leadership will be restocked. She's just advocating death. And okay, why? What are we doing here? What is going on? Now, this is my editorial content. Um, I don't want to see the United States military and my tax money and my energy used in doing what? Cleaning up what's left of an agreement that was forged in 1916. It was a secret treaty between the United Kingdom and France with the agreement of the Russian Empire and the Kingdom of Italy to define their mutually agreed spheres of influence and control in the eventual partition of the Ottoman Empire. It was called the Sykes-Picot Agreement. That's what we're defending. An agreement between, let me say, we weren't at this table. We were not at the table. The British and the French were there. They had the agreement of the Russians, allegedly an, you know, an, an enemy. They had the agreement of the Kingdom of Italy, eventually fascists. These colonial powers carved up the Ottoman Empire, which fell during World War I. And, you know, it's really interesting. And I want you to think about this. I'm going to leave you with this thought. Let's develop the skill of putting ourselves in someone else's shoes. Like, uh, I don't know, some poor guy that lives in the Middle East, in Iran, or in Lebanon. The way this thing was carved up, the Ottoman Empire, another, it's, like this, it's like the Soviet Union. Nice name, it's a cover story. It's the Russians. The Russian Empire was the Soviet Union. The Ottoman Empire was the Turkish Empire. It was the Turks. The Turks are Sunni Muslims. Go look at a map. Turkey is the link between Europe and Asia. It's a very strategically placed country. It's got borders with a lot of very important countries. And the Turks' hearts always long for Vienna, but they're trapped in this conflict over here in the Middle East. And they occupied big sections of, of Europe and the Middle East, and this empire lasted for centuries, and it finally exhausted itself because when you live by the sword, you die by the sword. That's the cautionary tale for my fellow American citizens, and the empire fell down at the end of World War I, and the area was partitioned by these colonial powers in this agreement. And thinking about it from the perspective of a local, a local person, here's what they see locally. The French, the French got control of Lebanon and Syria. And they've been expelled through conflict over the last 30 years. There was a very long conflict in Lebanon, and all the Christians either died or were, le or were expelled. They were Catholics. What kind of Catholics were they? Well, they'd be kind of like the Catholics that were the first Catholics that were converted to Christianity when Paul was walking up out of Israel on his way to Asia Minor. This is a very ancient Catholic community that was destroyed. And I have friends in this community, and they've scattered all over the world, including the United States. And now Lebanon and Syria no longer have any French influence other than some holdovers like they like uh, croissants there and coffee. So in the long march of history, from the perspective of the local, they've already gotten rid of one of the two signatories of the Sykes-Picot Agreement. They're winning. And we're thinking, oh, what's going on here? This whole thing is about expelling the United States and the British, getting them out of 
the Middle East because they're occupiers. They're colonial. We are colonial occupiers enforcing what's left of the Sykes-Picot Agreement. I'm talking about from the perspective, that other street corner of the local guy who's living in, let's say, Jordan or living in Saudi or living in Oman. They're saying, who are these people? Why are they here? Now, of course, the elites, the elites, they went to the same schools with our elites. They don't believe in Islam. They believe in the materialism of the cash, and there's a lot of cash over there. So the elites, again, just like in our country, have a different set of goals than the people do. What the people want, what the people want is the occupiers out of their countries, and they think they're winning because they've already expelled the French. They've expelled them. And now, as we bomb and kill and create mayhem, these people are very interested in seeing the U.S. military, which they see as being part of the Anglo-American empire. They see us, we the people, as defending the Anglo side of the Sykes-Picot Agreement, which includes countries like Iraq, countries like Israel, countries like Jordan, countries like Saudi, countries like Yemen. These people want to expel occupiers from their countries. You know, we dug, we, not we, wasn't us, the British dug a hole there to make a ton of money, and here we are like dummies defending their hole, like dummies. Now, I get people talking to me on social media, and they say, oh, we can't abandon our allies, and what about our interests? I'll tell you what our interest is. We have two interests, the U.S. dollar, our major export, and the U.S. military. And every place the dollar is, the military is, we're defending the banking system. We're not defending anything that helps my family, nothing. This whole area is about linking India and China to Europe. It's a European problem, and so is the Ukraine. And I'm entitled to my opinion, and I'm looking forward to hashing it out with you if you don't agree with me. That's why we have an informed dialogue, so we can have an informed conversation. So, yes, if you want to call me mega, you want to call me stupid, you want to call me this, you want to call me that, that's okay. You're not going to hurt me calling me names, but it's not a very good conversation. I'm inviting the people that want to have a very informed conversation to stay with the podcast, to stay with me on X. We do not have to agree. We can talk to each other. And if we talk to each other with respect, we're going to get somewhere. We don't know where that's going to go. We don't know where it's going to be. But we're going to get someplace different than where we are today. And where we are today is not very good. But, you know, there's always things that are holding over. You know, I don't want to be too negative because there's always so many uplifting things. And I hope that there wasn't a four-minute hole where Bob Marley's saying, I checked it. And YouTube let me. YouTube said, "Go ahead." And why is that? Because Bob Marley's estate said, "We want this message to be broadly disseminated throughout the world. We're not going to protect this copyright." Let's see if YouTube lets that play. And now I'm wanting because that the music, music is so beautiful. It's it's worth living for. Let's go out with something that is equally impressive. Uh, I do a lot of violin uh, pieces here because I'm a violin player. And I'm going to bring this up because the artistry, the greatness of this 
performance. It's uplifting. It's, it's a reason that we can talk to each other. And on that note, I want to thank you for joining, and I wish you well, and I look forward to seeing you soon again this coming Thursday night. Thank you very much. Thank you.